We are in Ephesians uh, chapter, chapter 2 today. Um, possibly the greatest uh, parable that Jesus ever told is uh, one that's called the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, actually, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Prodigal God, which is really more accurate to what it ought to be called because it's not the son that's scandalous uh, as much as the father. And uh, the, if you know the story, it's a fairly familiar story, but uh, the, uh, a rich man had two sons. The youngest son uh, asked his dad one day, he was just done with his dad, done with his family, just wanted his inheritance. And he basically was like wishing your dad was dead. And he, he said, I want my inheritance now. And I'm going to leave. So he got, his father was gracious. He should have cast him out at that moment. He was gracious and gave him his inheritance. The son left, went off to a foreign land, spent all of his money on uh, partying, friends, and, and, and uh, hooking up. And uh, when all that ran out, he was at the bottom of the, the social order and was actually uh, working with pigs. And if you imagine, this is a Jewish, young Jewish man working with pigs. Um, there's an issue there, um, but he, he was so hungry and he thought to himself, I will go home, but I'm not going to go home to try to be a son. I have, I've, I've really sinned against my dad. I'm going to go home as a servant. I'm going to come home and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way back up to my dad. I'm going to work my way to pay him back for, for all that I took from him. Um, and just be a servant. And the story goes, as the son was coming home, he, the, the father was outside. He looked up the road. And, and the way that the text is written, it's, it's that the father was looking for his son, waiting for his son to return. And when he saw him at a distance, the father ran. Now, you have to imagine this is an older man running. So if you could imagine an older man running in a three-piece suit down the street right now, you would think that's weird. That's how weird it was. For, a, for an older, older man did not run. It was beneath them. Young people ran. Older people had dignity and don't run. Well, the father ran to his son. And his son started, Dad, I've messed up and I want to be a servant. And the father ignored everything he said, hugged him, brought him a new robe, gave him a ring, threw a party, killed the fattened calf, which was saved for festivals and high events, high holidays, uh, threw a massive party for his son. And the oldest son, who kind of resented this, came out and he said, Dad, what are you doing? And he said, uh, this is what he said. He said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, is, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, when you hear the language of dead, like, was he really dead? Well, no. I mean, he, he wasn't physically dead, right? But, but he was dead in relationship to the father. He had abandoned the relationship with the father. He turned his back on the father, had taken everything the father had to offer him in terms of worldly goods and wanted to act like his father did not even exist. And this is um, part of the nature of sin. And we're going to see in the text today in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 7 that, that this language of being dead in sin is carried over. Paul uses this language. Um, and and it's, it's hard to, uh, to feel like, well, that seems like it's a little bit over the top. And, or is that how God really sees me? But the issue is we need to think about sin rightly. We need to think about sin biblically. And, and, and biblically, sin is not always raising your fist at God and yelling at God. Uh, sin is, is uh, my sin before I became a Christian was very much minimizing God, acting as if God wasn't the point, acting as if God really didn't matter, acting as if I was fine, I had what I wanted, and I didn't care. It was really, and this, is, this was my sin, it wasn't much hatred towards God as indifference towards God, even though God is the center of the universe. 
And so even though this son had grabbed the father's goods and ran away from the father, my sin was no less. I was no less dead to God the father than this uh, son was to his father. And this is the nature of sin from Adam and Eve on. That we as human beings have acted as if God isn't God. We've, we've acted as if God doesn't deserve our, our attention. God doesn't deserve our affection. God doesn't deserve to be the very center of our lives. Every time you're sin, you sin, every time I sin, we're saying, God, you're not that important. You're not the center. And today what we're going to see is maybe the most profound passage in the entire Bible that connects two things. One, our condition before Christ and God's intervention in Christ or through Christ for us. Like condensed, just deep, theological, beautiful truth that we're going to see today. I'm going to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 7 and I encourage you to follow along in your uh, Bible. And when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. But God, we're going to talk about that later, but that's a really good but. But God. Because if that wasn't there, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Uh, Mike's going to hit verses 8 through 10 next week. This is a, a section, verses 1 through 10 is kind of seen as one section. Um, but but we wanted, I wanted to, to, to do 1 through 7 today to introduce sort of our precondition, what Christ has done. And then next week, 8 through 10 really digs down into the nature of, of grace that we're saved by faith and the nature of the grace. And then what that grace does to us now as we live our lives in this world and uh, for God. So as I said, two ideas I want us to see today. One, and Paul's helping us see, our condition without Christ. Our condition without Christ. And then secondly, the intervention, God's intervention through Christ. So our condition without Christ. Since the dawn of philosophy, there's been a major question that has plagued human beings. And that is simply this. Are we good or are we bad? Are we inherently good or are we inherently bad? Um, if you look at Paul's explanation, we'll look at Paul's explanation here in a minute, but I, I want you to do a thought experiment before you have like your concepts and your thoughts about that. I want you to do a thought concept with me. Um, how many of you, I won't ask, no. Uh, the uh, Avengers Age of Ultron movie. Um, if you saw it, you may know the story. If you don't, I'll summarize very briefly for you. Uh, Tony Stark, who was like kind of the Elon Musk of the show, but then also became Iron Man, uh, he, uh, he created this AI. 
And when this AI came, became self-aware, the first thing it did is what you and I do every morning typically and get online and surf the internet for a little bit. After about 10 seconds of exhaustively searching the internet, Ultron comes to one simple conclusion. People are bad, and the only way to bring peace in our time is for human beings to stop existing. So he sets out to bring peace in our time, and of course the Avengers fight him, and I won't tell you who wins, but you can probably guess, um, even if you haven't seen it. But if you are Ultron, think about it for a moment, you have an unbiased opportunity to look at the, 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 the internet and take in human nature across the globe. What would your conclusion be? People are basically good or people are basically bad? I think we would have a hard time arguing for people to be fundamentally good with all the wars, the fighting, the disease, the selfishness and self-absorption, the the, uh, global income equality, the neglect of justice and generosity and so forth in our world. All of these things would testify and point to the fact that we are inherently bad. Now, that doesn't mean everything we do is bad. There is a common grace uh, that is given to all people as image bearers of God, which means they have the ability to do some good deeds in the world. There are things that, that a person who doesn't believe in God or follow God can do that theoretically, objectively looking at the activity itself is a good thing. Um, and so we're not saying that everybody is as equally engrossed in evil, but that simply there is an inherent flaw in our system. All of us, not all of us just simply collectively, but us individually have a flaw in our system. When we talk about, um, talk about sin, you know, it, one of the things that we do that reveals this flaw is the way we speak about it. People... people um, Christians, non-Christians use language like I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this or I slipped up or mistakes were made, right? Um, that language, I made a mistake. Um, we, we use euphemisms to kind of soften the blow of our own brokenness, our own sin. So we try to, to mitigate it that way. And as we go along with our own excuses and believe them, one of the things that also reveals that we're very bad people personally is that we are excellent at seeing bad in other people aren't we? It's those Republicans. Oh, it's the Democrats. No, it's, the, it's those people that live in the cities. They're driving their country into the ground. No, it's those people out in the rural areas, the flyover states that are ruining our country, right? Everybody is an expert in everything that everyone else does wrong. But we don't often hold the mirror up to ourselves with that same uh, rigor, do we? Um, again, revealing there is something deeply flawed about us. Paul, in fact, here, um, maybe the briefest, most profound description of a person without Christ that there is in the Bible. And he uses, and the the, the ideas he he builds here are that we are dead, we're disobedient, and we are doomed. We're dead, we're disobedient, and we are doomed. Now, if you're new to church, this is your first time at City on a Hill, welcome. I know you're super excited to be here today. You're thinking, wow, this is great. I love that I got to go to church and have somebody tell me how bad I am, Right? Um, I hear that, I, I totally get that, but let me, ex- let me explain something very simply. The gospel is good news. That's literally what the word means in the Greek language. It's good news. And it is good news because it intervenes in a bad situation. Otherwise, we would say the gospel is moderately nice news, kind of okay news, sort of good-ish 
But when you're dead, and the good news is that you've been made alive, and the opportunity to be made fully alive is there, that's great news, isn't it? So don't get caught up with, with the fact that, that what we're looking at says that we're dead. It's, it's a reality. It's a reality whether we want to believe it or not. The question then is how do you and I cope with that reality? And because there are plenty of people who aren't sitting in churches today, who aren't listening to the, the gospel, who are still trying to cope with their spiritual deadness, right? They, they just find different ways to do that. So what does Paul say? Verse one, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once Walk. So he's talking to the Ephesians here, if you remember, who were, God had broken out in the city in such a crazy way that it had uh, literally changed the, the, um, the business industries, uh, which were selling um, um, silver for, the, um, for, for trinkets and for uh, idols to be worshipped uh, in the city. Uh, that business had been suffering because of the gospel. So the city, people were becoming Christians. People were being set free by the gospel. And Paul's saying, you were dead in, in your trespasses and sins. Listen, not in some things you did, right? What's the language he says? In which you walked. So this is a pattern of us. Deadness is a pattern. It's not an event. I wasn't dead a moment ago. Now I'm not dead wasn't an event and I did, made me dead, now I'm not dead. It is a state of being and a state of walking. Now, one of the things that we tend to think is that we're not really, really dead. We tend to think we're just partially dead. We're kind of dead, we're sort of dead, we've got some deadness in us, right? I think most people that have any sense of self-awareness would say, well, yes, I've got some uh, things in my life and patterns in my heart and ways that I think that aren't really right. But we're not partially dead. Many of you may remember the great and epic movie, The Princess Bride. If you have not seen it, go home this afternoon, that's what you should watch. In The Princess Bride, Wesley, the, the main character, one of the main characters, dies and at the hands of Prince Humperdinck, and Prince Humperdinck had tortured him and killed him, and then uh, Wesley's friends, who, who uh, took him to um, uh, Miracle Max, who was a local like wizard, right? And they were like, is there anything you can do? And he said, our friend is dead, and, and Miracle Max says this, he goes, your friend is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still slightly alive. With all dead, well, there's all dead, there's only, usually only one thing you can do. And Wesley's friends are like, what? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> we aren't slightly dead or mostly dead. We are, we are dead. Paul is, Paul is saying that's a state of being. You're like, well, I feel alive. Well, that's, that's kind of, we'll get to that in a moment. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, Wendy Alsup, in her uh, book, By His Wounds, You Were Healed, said it this way. He said, we are not just generally frustrated by our sin or mired down in the muck of our sin. No, our situation was much worse. We were dead in our sin. No heartbeat, decaying flesh, kind of dead. Dead people do not make choices. Dead people do not resuscitate themselves. Dead people uh, cannot unwrap their shrouds or open their tombs. In other words, our situation was utterly hopeless. This is what he means. Now, breathe. Okay, breathe, because there's good news. But that's the first thing he wants us to see, is that we were dead. But he doesn't want us to just think it's, it's a state of being. He wants to help us to understand that it's involved in our actions as well, that we are disobedient, right? Um, when we talk about disobedience as part of our sin nature, um, one of the things that always comes to mind is being a parent. 
Now, when I, uh, when I, before I became a parent, I believed in this, right? I believed in it. After I became a parent, I became absolutely, unequivocally convinced of this reality. Now, why? Because either there's a nature of sin or it's nurture, right? And, and, and only children, children only sin or do wrong because they're nurtured that way. But let me explain to you, my children were not nurtured to lie. I mean, Teresa never looked at me and said, uh, after I left the toilet seat up and say, did you leave the toilet seat up? And I say, no, even though I'm the only guy in my house and we had had no one over. They never saw me deny that, right? And yet my children learned to lie. My kids never saw me grab the laptop out of my wife's hands and say, mine, right? Not once, but I saw my kids do that. And my kids had never seen us watching TV, my wife watching TV and me come in and ask, could we turn it to the game or turn it to something else? And she said, well, I'm in the middle of this. Uh, can we, we'll wait till later. Uh, and, and me throw myself onto the floor, flail around with hands and feet and cry out, I never get to watch what I want. <laughs> Not once did my kids ever see me do that, but they did, Right? So what I'm saying is there is something inherent in us from a very young age. As adults, we just get better at hiding it, right? We do. We, we know that that looks ridiculous if we act that selfish. But listen to Paul. Paul says there's three influences to our disobedience. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. Look at what he says in verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So I want to look at these briefly. Following the course of this world is the first thing he hits. It's a system of thinking that we are born into. It doesn't matter what culture you're born into. Listen, I've, I'm convinced of this. Every culture on earth has uh, reflections of the image of God. There are good things. There are things that reflect how we were created to be. And then every culture is also broken and systematically in rebellion against God as creator. And it can be everything from how people treat each other to how people uh, view different classes uh, and all of that. We live in that world. And this world that we live in teaches us and disciples us. Right? From a very young age, our culture teaches us that, that you should find your hope and your satisfaction in money, power, position, or pleasure. Money, power, position, or pleasure. Pick your poison, right? One of those is going to be the answer to your life, and that's where you've been discipled to believe that a little more money, a little more power, a little more position, a little more pleasure, that's going to be where you hit the real sweet spot in life is full of meaning and hope and purpose. That's what we're taught, and that's the the, the, the course of this world. And then he says, following the prince of the power of the air. Any guesses who this is? Not Jesus, right? This is the devil, Satan, right? This, now, I know we're very advanced and we don't believe in Satan, um, but he's real and he loves the fact that we don't believe he's real because you can't take a stand against someone you don't believe is real and they can have your number all day long. Now, sometimes we think, well, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a Satanist, right? But the interesting thing about Satanism is it's not about putting a pentagram on your forehead or you know, playing with Ouija boards. 
Satanism, and even modern Satanists would argue this, Satanism boils down to hedonism. Simply living for your own pleasure. Simply living as if you're the point. And Satan is glad to help us in that journey. And then he says, you lived in the passions of your flesh, right? So we got the world, the devil, and now the flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Here's the thing about that that you need to know. It feels natural to you. It feels natural. You know why? Because you want to do it. <laughs> I have never struggled to, 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 with what I want to do, right? It's never been like, well, no, I shouldn't want, or I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't do what I want. Wanting is, is, is easy. It's a natural path. It makes sense. I want to do that. I should do that. And that's the passions of our mind and our bodies that are controlling us. And these desires are not neutral. Look within yourself to find your deepest desires and wants and then live that out in this world. How many people, how many millions, hundreds of millions even in the United States are buying into that philosophy? That the meaning and purpose of life is not out here, it's in here. You just dig in as deep as you can and whatever desires or feelings or passions or wants that you have, that's you and that's how you lead to fullness and experience all that life is meant to be. I know it's not nice to say that but or say it, but... That's a bankrupt position. Why? Well, let's just look at this objectively for a moment and back up. How long have you been in the world? Five minutes? And yet, you have the ability to, within yourself, to find the meaning and purpose and to be oriented to the world around you. All from looking within. In five minutes that you showed up on the scene, you've got it all figured out, right? No, anybody who looks at it and goes, no, I, I should probably kind of look out a little bit and kind of see things because I am new, right? I am new. Humanity's been around a while. The world's rolling around. There's a lot of people around. And maybe my understanding and view of the world is not actually accurate. My thoughts, my desires, my longings, my feelings may not be the ultimate guide to truth. How many people actually stop and think that? Why? Because they don't, because we're being fed it day by day. Eat it up. Why? Because it, here's the point. It says you're the point. Anybody here like to feel like the point? I mean, let's be honest. Okay, I'm the only one, right? I like to feel like the point. Yes, Caleb, thank you, brother, for your honesty. We all like to feel important. We all like to feel centered. We all like to feel like, like, like we're, we matter. But rather than looking at the God of the universe to orient ourselves around to him and understanding our importance that way, we look within because we're told that's where we go. So we've been, we're dead, we're disobedient, and we're doomed. Verse three, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We don't like to think of wrath, feels outdated, right? Feels a little um, regressive, a little, God's a little judgy, right? Um, and after all, people feel fine, right? I mean, like you go out on the street and you ask someone, do you feel like you're living as a child of wrath? <laughs> what are you going to get? You're going to get a weird look, first of all, and then second of all, if they honestly answer, they're going to be like, no. 
Let me, let me ask you a question, though. Or let me orient you around something. Wrath is not always active, right? Sometimes wrath is letting a person have exactly what they want. Let's just use a, a, a meth addict, right? A meth addict thinks meth is good, right? They, they, they think it's fantastic. It it's, brings them joy, brings them life, right? So they're gonna keep taking that. Now, let me tell, ask you what wrath is. Is wrath always... Uh, you know, involve intervening or is it simply letting someone go headlong into the thing, very thing that will ultimately destroy them? You see, the reason God's not like grabbing all of us all the time or putting brakes on all of the things that we do in this world is because we are children of wrath. He has allowed us the freedom to be able to go headlong into the things that will destroy us. You want to live like you're the point? You want to live like you're, I mean, you're a narcissist, right? You're a narcissist. And, and, and you're going to follow that path. Any, anyone have any thoughts about where that might ultimately lead objectively? Taking a step back, looking at it objectively, you're the point, your feelings, your thoughts, they're the guide for everything. That's you giving in, you pursuing that. You let everyone else fall by the wayside because it's all about you. Where does that lead? Flourishing? Happiness? Hope? No. We are all under that living Life under that. In the face of all of this, this death, this disobedience, and, and being doomed under God's wrath, you have two choices. Again, I'm going to argue every person in this room and every person in the city, uh, apart from Christ, is, is in these positions. It's just whether we deal, how we deal with it, right? Whether we acknowledge it, whether, how do we deal with it? People, you, so you have options. Your options are, you don't believe this, and so you reorient your own thinking and you try to figure things out for yourself. You try to do some good. You try to, try to be a good person. You try to do some good things. You try to earn your way to God so that he will approve you and love you, right? Or whatever your meaning or purpose in life is. Or you can feel the weight of this and then let God's intervention come into focus and see exactly how beautiful and amazing it is. And that's what the good news is here. And the second point that Paul gives us is it's God's intervention in Christ. So it's our condition before Christ, and now God's intervention in Christ. This is the core of Christianity, that God initiated our salvation. We weren't down on earth kind of realizing how alienated we are and went, you know what, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna um, make our way back up to God. We're gonna earn our way back up to God. No, Paul says very clearly here at the end of this description, he says, but God, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You were disobedient, living under the, the, the framework of the world, under the influence of the devil, and in, in, in disobedient uh, behavior according to your own flesh, giving into your own flesh, but God, right? And you were a child of wrath, but God, God intervenes. You see how instantly this gets our eyes off of ourselves and up? God is the one that comes down. God's not at the top of the mountain saying, come on, come on, you can do it. Try harder, get your way up here. No, he came down off of the mountain for you and I. If you have your journal Bible, you might want to just circle these words, but God. I, I think they may... <laughs> it's interesting, one of the greatest uh, preachers of the 20th century was a, a physician who became a pastor in, uh, in London. Um, his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Lloyd-Jones spent like five years preaching through Ephesians. We're not gonna take that long. 
so rest assured. He preached one entire sermon on but God. <laughs> Not going to do again that again today. But that's how deep and powerful this truth is. Tim Keller says the essence of the gospel is God has done something that can undo everything else for us. So God rescued us. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. Not just mercy, but rich in mercy. Rich. That today, no matter how you're feeling about yourself, no matter how you're feeling about your sin, your struggles, your weaknesses, uh, your addictions, whatever they are, whatever you feel in bondage to, do not doubt the richness of God's mercy. That you are not beyond it. That God has the power, in fact, to take your story and weaponize it against the kingdom of darkness. Listen, I've seen it. I've met many Christians in my life Many of the most faithful, most powerful Christians I've ever met in my life were people with the deepest darkness before they came to Christ. Some deep darkness. And Christ changed them. And Paul wants us to see here that this this plan, this intervention, it flows from his love. Look at verse four. But God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, I think about having theolog- going through theological education and I think about the way that sometimes people talk uh, and, uh, and writers write about this. Like it's like a, a doctrinally interesting position. Let us consider today the richness of God's mercy, right? And I, and I, and I realize the only times that is not blowing my mind and heart completely open is when I've allowed my heart to get cold towards God. I've gotten a little caught up with this world. I've gotten caught up with my own passions. I've gotten caught up with my circumstances. But when I see this, and and if you're a Christian, you have experienced this at some point, your heart begins to explode when you understand that God's richness and mercy is not out there in some nebulous idea, but for you personally, that God in the richness of his mercy, because of his great love for you, came for you. So it it's flows from his love. And secondly, and finally here, part of this, God's intervention is that it's found in Christ. This is really beautiful. Look at verse five through seven here. Because of his love and his great mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Mike's gonna talk more about that next week. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something very, very important here. This is past tense. This is not present tense. It's past tense. Now, why is it, why is it past tense? It's because it's pointing back to the work of Christ. That on the cross, regardless of when you were born, God took your sin, applied it to Christ, and made you alive with him. Remember, God is outside of time, so he's not, he's not kind of he's like, well, you know, she hasn't been born yet. I'll wait a few thousand years, and then she'll show up. You know, it, he doesn't operate that way. He saw, he knew, he knows, and he took your sin, and he put it on Christ. So at the moment that Christ was crucified, 
He made you alive with him. Verses five through seven are full of references of salvation coming from the relationship with Christ. Verse five, made us alive together with Christ. Verse six, raised us up together, that is with Christ. Verse six again, seated us with him, that is in Christ. Verse seven, in the coming age, you'll show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. Right, so, so you heard this in the first few weeks of this series. This is the, 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 a central theological idea of the book of Ephesians is that the Christian now, what every blessing, everything we experience from God is found in Christ. This is the grace of God and it's the only thing that can save us from our sin. the only thing that can save us from our self-actualized gospel which we're fed everywhere today listen the self-actualized gospel makes sense to us it feels good to us because it's like uh it's like offering a flammable liquids course to a pyromaniac of course they're going to enjoy the course It, it, it feeds something very deep in them right And anyone that can tell us we get to focus on us, we get to make ourselves the point, robs us actually of life. Because the gospel teaches that God didn't intervene to come come down and tell us how incredibly awesome we were. Hey guys, wanted to stop by, wanted to let you know you're doing a great job, keep it up, right? No, we were dead and he intervened. We were disobedient and he came for us. We were under his wrath and he stopped us in our tracks to give life Christ and Christ alone is that process is where we find that every verb in the original Greek in this these few verses here um, has the prefix prefix sin connected with it not S-I-N S-Y-N which is where we get our word sync from you sync your phone you sync up your calendars Last, year, last week, we had a community group leaders sync, right? What's the idea? With, right? Everyone together, connected. And so what Christ does, it says in this passage, he made us alive with Christ. That is, Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. He's raised us up with Christ. That is, Christ is in the heavenlies right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. You are in him. If you are a believer, you're a Christian, you are in Christ, seated with him. One theologian or commentator said, what God has accomplished in Christ, he has also accomplished for believers. And this is the gospel, friends. It breaks into our heart. And today, if it has not broken into your heart and you have not become a Christian, you're you're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to save yourself by either looking for things out there or, or clean yourself up or fix yourself up or straighten yourself up and, because you don't feel worthy. I remember having this conversation with uh, even my freshman year in college when I was uh, thinking about like an exploring faith in Christianity and I was talking to my roommate and I just remember I was like, I remember looking at him and I'm like, man, I just kind of, I feel like I got to work on some things before I, I do this. And he's like, that's crazy. That's like taking a shower before you take a bath. Like it, it doesn't make sense because the whole point of Christianity is that Christ cleans you up. Not you get yourself straightened out and then you're good enough for Christianity. And that's the good news. 
for you and I today. And listen, the the old Puritans used to say, uh, pastor preachers used to say, the same uh, sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And it's sad that that someone would harden their heart in the face of this. And so I want to plead with you today, if you've never trusted Christ, you've never experienced this but God in your life, don't harden your heart today. If you feel God softening your heart towards him, you're beginning to see this. Press in. Close your eyes right now and pray. Talk to him. Listen, he's available to you. Everything I've said about in this text today has been available to every Christian since Christ was crucified. And it's available today. If you are, well, I would say this, that going back to the prodigal son, the father's waiting for you. He's standing He's ready for you. And he's not interested in hearing you explain how you're going to try harder. You're going to do better. He's just ready to embrace you. What a beautiful picture for us today. If you're a Christian, I want to challenge you because we, even as a Christian, we can be caught up in the schemes of the devil. We can be caught up in our flesh. We can be caught up by the world. Right? We can be, we are challenged every day, tempted every day. We can be distracted. We can get discouraged. And whatever you're carrying today as a Christian, would you, would you, I just want you to think about it for a moment, the shame or guilt, and just, just think, but God. But God. Right? Interrupt those thinking. Interrupt that's the thought. Maybe you're full of anxiety. Maybe you're full of, of worry. But God intervened because of his great love for you. You personally, not just this church in general, but you personally. And he made us, if you're a Christian, alive together with Christ. This is why we celebrate communion every single Sunday at the end of the uh, sermon. It's it's because we, after listening to God's word, we respond uh, by taking God's word this way. We want to go and take God's word physically. Be reminded of what Christ has done. This message isn't about loading up guilt or shame. It's about setting you free. It's about bringing clarity, giving you 20-20 vision so you can kind of see who you are and what Christ has done for you. And so when you take communion, whatever sin God brings to your mind and your heart, I want you to take those elements and you say, but God. But God. He came for you. If you're a Christian, anytime over this next song, I would encourage you to step out. This is the meal for the family of God. If you're not a Christian, this is the one part of service, again, we'd ask you not to, to take. It's just because you haven't joined the family of God, not just this local church, but the, the eternal family of God. And so we want to help you in that journey before you take communion. So we'd ask you to not take during this time. Anytime over this next song, if you're a follower of Jesus, not everyone at once, but one by one, we have to eat outside of this room. We're not allowed to bring food in here. So just make your way to the front, kind of head out that side door. There'll be stations outside. You can take communion there and then on, come in through the back entrance here. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray and then we can respond together. God, as we, as we feel the weight of what Paul says to us today this we don't like being told we're dead we don't like being told we're 
disobedient or doomed under your wrath. It pushes against us, pushes against our, our, our sense of, of self-preservation. But Lord, help us to see the beauty that in admitting these things and coming clean before you in these things, we get to see the cross. We get to see Christ. We get to experience being made alive together with him, being raised up with him, being seated with him in the heavenly places today. Break through into our hearts with that. Every one of us in this room, Lord, need it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray.